This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Matteo Bologna about his early years in Italy, his addiction to typography, and about self-confidence. The truth is, because I learned graphic design by myself, type design by myself, branding by myself, I feel always insecure. You know, you never feel like, wow, I am the right person. Here's Debbie Millman. To brand or not to brand? That is not the question for Matteo Bologna and his New York-based branding firm, MUCA. The question is how to brand in a way that clarifies a company's goals and brings the company closer to its customers. MUCA's clients include the big and the small, the national and the local. They have designed book jackets for Rizzoli and HarperCollins and brand identities for Balthazar, Schiller's, and Pastis. They've done work for Adobe and also for menu pages. Food, you may notice, in the form of restaurants and stores, is prominent in their portfolio. But that's not all they do. To talk about his work with MUCA and beyond, Matteo Bologna joins me at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Matteo, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. So, Matteo, I understand that you learned typography via a hacked copy of Fontographer while spending hours on the phone trying to break up with a girlfriend. Yes. Who That's would the have, truth. Who would have thought that you'd turn that into a career? Oh, it's, it was the only way to learn typography. I mean, when you have a very boring girlfriend who keeps talking about her problems on the phone... <laughs> That's what you do. You open a software, you have no idea what it does, and, oh, you can make fonts with it. What kind of fonts were you making? Horrible fonts. I had no idea what kerning was. I had no idea what letter spacing was. I had no idea of anything. So I just made funky fonts. And did you send her letters with the funky fonts? No, it was just a phone relationship. I couldn't even print them. (laughs) I didn't know how to print. It was a new computer. Okay. So you grew up in Milan, Italy, and went to school at Liceo Artistico Santa Marta Milano. How do you know that? Oh, I have my little private investigators. Yes, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that was high school, though. Yeah. In Italy, when uh, you are 14, you go to high school, and uh, the school is like a vocational school. It could be like classical studies like Latin, Greek, and shit like that, or scientific studies or technical studies, which I have no idea what they're learning, and then artistic studies, which was the school for the stupid. So I remember the first day in class, everybody else was like three or four years older than me, people that never pass school in the other classes. I was the only one who actually liked to draw. I was the super nerd. And was this before or after your foray into photographer? Uh, this was like when I was 14. I never had a girlfriend until I was like 20. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> okay, let's start talking about my sexual life. <laughs> or lack of. <laughs> Liceo Artistico. <laughs> yes. So if you hadn't needed something to do when you were breaking up with your ex-girlfriend, what do you think you would have done? I, I read that you thought you were going to become a bass player. Is that true? My God, do you have a team of investigators? (laughs) Yes, uh, I was a terrible bass player. I was playing jazz 
And all my friends were way better than me. And that was a blessing because I sucked. And therefore, I thought instead of, you know, having a profession as somebody who sucks, maybe I can have a profession as somebody who has... Doesn't suck. I mean, kind of suck, but at least designing and illustrating. In the beginning, I was an illustrator. I was way better than as a musician. So you actually began your career when you were 18 as a magazine illustrator. And I understand that this coincided when you bought your first laser writer. No, actually this happened later. After finishing Liceo Artistico, which was like 60 hours a week of just drawing, 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 which was fantastic, and sculpting also, I ended up through friend of my mother, they... Who came over for dinner one night and saw how yeah. good you were on the okay. computer. Is my interview or your interview? <laughs> well, I want to make sure we get all those details because they're really funny, actually. Uh, I, uh, you know, my mother had friends and uh, they needed illustrators for their magazine. And the good thing about Italy is the bar. It's extremely low. They don't care about the quality of your work. The most important thing is that you're a friend of a friend and you're cheap. So, you know, when you're 18, you're like, yeah, whatever, I'll do it. And I started doing illustrations with watercolor and ink. After a few years of making these illustrations and delivering them by hand, I was called at 12 o'clock by the art director of this magazine and saying, Matteo, we need an illustration. And I was like, okay, I'll make it. We need it by 7 o'clock. And I was like, oh, fuck. Sounds like you're working with the New York Times op-ed page. Yes, but it was a New York Times. It was a shitty magazine. So I had to make it by hand and then take my bicycle and deliver it to them. Now, is with... there any way we can see any of this early work of yours? What magazine? That was, was... A horrible. No, no, they're so bad and they're hidden very well. I killed everybody who has possessions of those magazines. And then... Because I was, you know, the kid, 8 o'clock in the evening, they're trying to close the magazine. They need help. And so they started asking me to do graphic design stuff. But my technical skills were equals to shit. I was such a bad mechanical artist that I decided that you need to use a computer because everybody was talking about computers. So I started to think... To buy a computer with a friend of mine because it was so fucking expensive. Can I say the word fucking? Absolutely. Okay. Can I say the word expensive? Only if you have to. Okay. It was like the equivalent of spending, I don't know, 25 grand nowadays for a computer with two megabytes of RAM. But with a 13 inches monitor, the initial idea was to buy the computer with some friend. Of course, at the end, I was able to lease the computer for the equivalent of $700 a month for three years. I have to say that I was very lucky because I was still living in my mother's house. So all the money that I was making went to invest in the computer and not in the rent or food or other stuff. I love my mother. Hi, mom. So the computer was a Macintosh 2X. Immediately, by the moment that I bought it, the people from the magazine, they were so fascinated that this kid had a computer. They didn't have a computer in the magazine. They had no idea what a computer could do. And they asked me to make an illustration with the computer. 
I made the illustration with a software that I didn't know how to use. What software was it? It was, um, I don't know if it was Illustrator or Aldous Freehand <laughs> version 1.0. And so I made this illustration, which kind of looked like shit. And then I had to give it to them. And I had no idea how to give them the file. I didn't even know it was called the file. I didn't know how to save. So I took a photograph of the screen and I gave it to them. And they loved it. But it must have taken time to have the film developed back No, then. no, it takes one day. In one day I had the film developed and gave it to them. And you gave them the and, and they I loved gave them it. a slide. It looked oh, like slide. shit. It looked like shit. And uh they loved it. It was made with a computer. That was enough. <laughs> and that's what saved me. I mean, the standards in Italy were bad. Do you the think they're still as bad? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, there's w- way better designers than used to be when I was there. But the bar is low. So and did you go from that experience goodness. working for the magazine to starting your partnership with your two partners in Italy? Uh, no, I did uh, a few years of working with this friend of my mother who had this uh, very cool uh, packaging company, big packaging company in Italy. He came one evening at my house for dinner and he realized that with my $20,000 computer, I was able to do way more stuff than with his workstation that he was very proud of that cost like $200,000 was now, was the company that you were working for at that time Design Associati de Milano? It was called Joe Rossi Associates. I worked for this guy for one year. He was my only mentor. What did he teach you? Life. A mentor teaches you about life. And then maybe about type and other stuff. And then with one of the co-workers there, we decided to leave and open a company. We ran our company for a couple of years. And uh, because murder, it's illegal in Italy, we decided to close it. <laughs> what, what, why did you have such a hard time getting along with your partners? Um, I cannot tell publicly. Oh, okay. Later. Yes. Okay. So I read an interview with you where you stated the majority of Italian graphic design sucks. This is because it is not supported by business. In Italy, most companies don't think that design adds value to a business, while in America, you wouldn't see a business operating without the help of a designer. Really, in Italy, most companies don't think that design adds value to a business. Really? Unfortunately. What about Prada? What about... Yeah, but that's... uh, that's Fashion. Fashion. So you're talking about sort of mainstream corporate business. Yes. Why is that? I mean, Italians seem so no. aesthetically superior. Why? I don't know. Two nights ago, I was uh, I went to a party of some Italian company here and uh, was introduced to the owner of the company as a designer in Manhattan that is uh, also Italian. It says, ah, we need designers. Are you expensive? That's the first question. That's the first fucking question. Yeah. It's not, are you good? Are you going to help me to build my business? I mean, are you a talented person that can help me to make more money? It's just, are you cheap? Because it's like, I know that I need graphic design, but I don't understand why we need design and branding. So I try to spend the least amount of money because that's how it is. 
It's ironic because I think that if people understood the value that design actually brings to business, they would never consider doing anything without it, given how you could look at the stock prices of the companies that utilize design in a way that helps run their business or drive their business, and they just historically have done better in the market. Okay. If you can say that in Italian I'd and do very teach well. them <laughs> about that, I'll, I'll pay you. <laughs> so I, so I, I read that you stated that the real reason you came to the U.S. is because you wanted to escape having to use innuendos and photos of sexy women in your design work. Uh, yes, because I want to... Okay. I'm not going to make <laughs> and I was any like, really? bad comments. I can't yes. imagine why you wouldn't want to use innuendo and sexy women in I mean, your design work. That's how it is. You know, in Italy, you see these posters, in the street posters selling, I don't know, microphones, and there's a naked woman selling light bulbs, selling shoes, selling anything like buttons, and there's a naked woman, which is okay. I mean, it's fine, but, I mean, it shows you that there's not real deep thinking about the stories. So you came to New York City in 1994. Mm -hmm. You started working in your apartment And very shortly after arriving, you got your first two design jobs back-to-back. The first for the Russian speakeasy Pravda. Mm -hmm. The second for Keith McNally, who the New York Times called the restaurateur who invented downtown. Mm -hmm. How does somebody that has come to New York for the first time, who barely speaks English, who's portfolio must be filled with ads full of innuendos and sexy women <laughs> get jobs like Bravda and Balthazar right out of the gate. It's very simple. And again, we go Friend back... Friend of your mother? <laughs> well, no, we go back to the bar is low. And the girlfriend of a friend of mine, she was the au pair of um, Keith McNally's partner at the time, and they needed a graphic designer. So my friend said, hey, you should call my friend, my Italian friend, blah, 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 blah. And I meet her. Her name is Anna Opitz. She's the owner of Pravda, who's German, and Keith, who's English. And it was probably my third month here in the States. And the third month that you're in a different country, your English is not great. I mean, it's not great now after 20, but I mean, can you imagine... 20 years ago. So, yeah, but you still had that Matteo charm. I don't know. It was one of the weirdest interviews that I had. We had it in a bar. I showed my portfolio. Keith practically didn't even look at it. And then he started to talking to me, and I couldn't understand a single word, like zero. And he started showing me photographs of Russian constructivism, stuff that I knew because I studied. And I was like... Okay, cool, yes. I have no idea what's happening right now. Apparently, I was hired to do the job. Like, they didn't really need the design. They needed a hand. And maybe I added more to what they really needed because then uh, he called me to work on Balthazar. Now, the look for Pravda, I remember going to Pravda when it first opened and was really struck. How can you remember? Everybody was drunk at the time. Well... No, I'm not a big vodka fan, so I I was able to stay sober for at least part of the time. Okay. But it wasn't just the identity that was so striking. It was everything about the Pravda brand, dare I say it, that was so consistent and so on brand. I mean, it was beautifully, deliberately, elegantly done. 
And you were what? In your mid-twenties? How do you... Yeah, but I mean, my job was just to work on the menus and some signage and some packaging of the bottles. I mean, I was following what Keith and Anna, okay, so, Anna's so, vision. I mean, so let's assume that Pravda was just your following or riding the coattails mm-hmm. of Keith and mm-hmm. Anna. You'd go directly from that into Balthazar. Mm-hmm. And the success of the restaurant you contributed to greatly by the overall look and feel of everything that you did. There's no way that you can look at that identity and not think there was a master at work on this. How did you go from... Your two megabyte, two e computer, just a few years prior to coming to New York, getting what could likely be called one of the most important restaurant jobs of that decade, and do it so freaking brilliantly. Like, where did that come from? Where did you get the skills? No fucking idea. I didn't know. It just happened. You know. I mean, things like that don't just, just happen, Mateo. Yeah, it's 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 passion. You know, I was doing something that was cool. I mean, I. I have to do something that is And you were working out of your girlfriend's style. bedroom, right? No, that was my wife's bedroom. Okay, your wife's bedroom. <laughs> your <laughs> yeah, bedroom. Yeah, my bedroom. <laughs> the actually. bedroom you shared with your wife. <laughs> yes. So you didn't even have a studio. You did everything by yourself. Yes, it was pretty cool. It was great to work with Keith. He had the vision. It, it was At the end, it doesn't look like a Disney version of a French bistro because there was so much real passion from Keith. So I was trying to do the coolest stuff with, you know, the menus, the signage, uh, the uniforms, the packaging. This is a job that has more than 20 or 30 typefaces per page design. So And one of the boxes fantastic. that you designed, I think there were 11 typefaces, yes. none of which are from Massimo's list, as you yes, so yeah. brilliantly put it. <laughs> um, how many designs would you do back then? If you're working by yourself, trying to just get it right, working in your bedroom, I, when I, you were working with Keith, like how many identities would you show for Balthazar I mean, when with, you first started uh, out? With Keith, I didn't know at the time that you were supposed to do no more than two logos because then the client gets confused. I don't know. I designed like 3,000, a million. No, probably like 10 different ideas. Keith was sitting next to me and I was showing stuff and say, what if we do this? What if we do that? And it was like, it was very collaborative. So you started Muka Design in 1999 when you realized that you had to move out of your bedroom mm-hmm. and then also realized you had to consider the idea of a profit. Had you not considered that before? Were you... No, the truth is I was working in my bedroom at night because during the day I was actually working for Ralph Appelbaum Associates. I worked there for like four or five years. While I was there, I started doing these freelance jobs like Balthazar was a freelance job. Then I started designing book jackets. Was that for Rizzoli? For Rizzoli. By pure chance, I met this uh, Italian editor who came to New York and... uh, the first job that we did, we I was shipping stuff via FedEx. There was no internet. Then I convinced him to get a modem so they could get a CompuServe uh, <laughs> account. And uh, <laughs> okay, and uh, I started sending him files, which was super cool. And after four or five years, I was in charge of all the art direction of the uh, imprint from New York, so everything via PDFs and emails. And you do, what, 200 a year now? I, at that time, uh, 
we were doing probably more three, four hundred book jackets here because then we, at a certain point, we started doing also a lot of book jackets for Harper Collins. So there was a moment where Mucha Design was ninety percent about book jackets and very little branding, and now is the exact opposite. We killed all our book jackets clients. We don't want to work with them anymore. Why not? Because, you know, once you taste the beautiful uh, flavors of working with a client that has only one product for two years or one year, namely a branding project, let's say a packaging or a restaurant or a hotel, dealing with designing book jackets with an editor who is in charge for 30 books a year, who has to find the authors, read the manuscripts, edit the manuscripts, talking to those fucking graphic designers who never do what he wants, hoping that the marketing department would push his book, hoping that the sales department would push his one out of 30 books a year, as a graphic designer, it's extremely frustrating because you just show book jackets and the reason to choose a book jacket is like, I like it, I don't like it. And instead, when you work on, on, uh, on branding projects, there's a process that is more um, where there's some thought before. The thought is discussed and understood with your client. And then there is the delivery of the design. So you describe your company now as a branding firm and have specifically said that you don't feel ashamed to say that you run a branding company. Why would you or anyone feel ashamed about that? Why the caveat? What's the name of the this? Uh, the Masters program? in Branding Department? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, because, I don't know, when I started it was called uh, Corporate Identity. Are those two nicer words? No, but I mean, it's just a different name for the same thing. So why do you think that people, why that caveat? Why is there this sense from what I guess I'll call the more precious design world that there's something dirty and not in a good way about branding? No, it's not that there's something dirty. It's like, I honestly, I, I know that I'm supposed to answer because there's a microphone in front of me. I don't know how to express it. Uh, that's what I'm doing. You can call it as you want, but I don't think uh, what Massimo Vignelli did for American Airlines 20 years ago wasn't branding. It was branding. Yes. It's called differently. And I don't know, it makes me want it to call it corporate identity just for the sake of making people upset. Well, I mean, I, I when when I first heard that you were describing your firm as a branding firm, I was ecstatic. I was euphoric because I thought, well, if Matteo, who has these sort of godlike typographic skills, could admit, so to speak, that he's working in branding, then, you know, there's room for everyone because you can put a whole different spin on what the expectation is of somebody that does branding, where you can actually have beautiful, elegant, deliberate work. That, that makes a difference. I don't think that, I mean, uh, the word branding precludes the fact that you can do amazing work. I mean, I, no, I, I don't I either, think but there are I a lot of people that, that roll their eyes and, you know, you just say the word and it becomes eye roll inducing. Yes, it's, you know, it's just about storytelling. 
the way you tell. Uh, you know, I think it, that's an easy way out. Now I'm sick of hearing storytelling. It's like I saying know, that you do strategy. Right, but people don't like strategy. People like storytelling. Okay. But it's just because people jump on a bandwagon of trying to describe something in a certain way and it becomes fashionable mm, yes. and then dull. Okay, let's do this. Okay. Why don't we change the name of the program? <laughs> to this master's in storytelling. <laughs> no, no, master's in corporate identity. <laughs> because I don't believe that corporate identity is enough. I don't think no, that's no, all it's No, no, I agree with you also because the industry changed so much. I don't know. There's something about the word doesn't sound good. It reminds me of cows. Well, that's what your name of your company means. <laughs> that's why. Mocha. Mocha means But cow, now I yes. want to ask you actually about your name. I, I read two different accounts of how you got to your name. The first is, since it means cow in Italian, Mocha was the nickname that you had for your Dalmatian dog, um, since he's black and white like a cow. Mm-hmm. And then I read another account that you came up with your name with your strategy team who spent six months doing research and customer service, analyzing the market, doing a competitive analysis and brand positioning. <laughs> so which is it? <laughs> Dog <coughs> or research? <laughs> Can I not answer to this? <laughs> that, yeah, you probably shouldn't. <laughs> so, next. Okay, yes, next. Um You've said that a logo is actually not going to help you sell products, speaking mm-hmm. of corporate identity. Yes. So a logo does not help you sell products. What does? A brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very difficult. Bastardo. <laughs> Bastardo. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, logos are they have no sense if they're not part of a big organism. It's just a cell in a part of, of, a, of a big body of things that makes the company. It works uh, if you are Coca-Cola and you put it and you have a lot of money. So you can just live probably with your fucking logo and just slap it everywhere. Maybe it doesn't even work. But repetition, hammering on people's heads will create recognition. I don't know if we'll create uh, understanding of the values of the brand, but at least you, oh, that's that brand. If you see it a million times, you recognize it. I often work with clients that are so small that their logo appears like twice. And what is more important is the environment, especially when we work in restaurants. You don't want to have the logo everywhere. As a matter of fact, years ago we did a job with Jeffrey Zakarian. The restaurant was called Country. And purposely we decided to change the logo. It was two C's. In every different printed matter. <laughs> Because, I mean, you already know where you are. Once you're in the restaurant, you don't need to be reminded. If you like it, you remember. Very few restaurants do advertising, and you will never remember their logo. I understand that when you were first working for restaurateurs, in your own words now, you had no fucking idea how to structure the building of a narrative for a client's visual communication. So how did you learn how to do that? How did you learn how to build a narrative for a client's visual communication? By learning about their business. You can be as creative as you want, as smart as you want, but the best thing is to learn from your clients, especially if their clients working in industries that you have never worked before. And just listen, look, and learn, and ask everybody, from the busboy to the maitre d' to the chefs, 
to the accounting person, working alongside with all these people, you learn about the business. So I saw a presentation that you made, and I believe that it was your Creative Mornings presentation, which is really wonderful in so many ways. And you talk about your process, and so I, I transcribed it because oh, I wanted to goodness. ask you about it because it's so funny and, and so real. So this is your process. A client asks for a logo and collateral. I research looking through design books, new and ancient. Then I make the logo out of what I just saw in the books. And then I make 10 more. Then I present all of those logos to the client. Client is confused after the third one. Client becomes a designer and suggests mixing Proposal 3 with Proposal 5, but with the colors of 8. After a couple of days of moving pieces here and there, the new logo is done. Now the client thinks the logo is a mismatch of different ideas. Back to square one. More presentations follow until the logo gets chosen for some esoteric reason or exhaustion. (laughs) Sounds like a client I'm working with right now. The thing that I found so revelatory about this particular monologue that you had was the notion of the client becoming the designer. Now, if we were Massimo Vignelli, we would never allow that to happen. The client tries to do that. We tell them to stop or we walk away. How do you get the client to not become the designer? How do you avoid that process? First of all, I have Roberta in my office. Who's so she's my your partner. managing director? She's very good at making sure that the clients are participant from the get-go of the creative process. It's very, very rare that we have jobs that are not accepted by the clients because we figure out a process that is not what I, what you just read, that was actually the wrong one. Uh, <laughs> we include the clients from the first meeting in the creative process, we never show them something that is unexpected in a bad way. I mean, it could be unexpected, but we try always to make sure that we have a positioning, a brain positioning, and we follow the brain positioning. If the brain positioning says that this brand is happy, joyous, and uh, fun... I will make sure that all my designers have the brain position is stuck next to their computer. Whenever they design a logo, they will never show me a logo that is black on black because black on black is not happy, is not fun. We try to verbalize first the design. And we have a meeting usually before showing any design where we work with the client on this brain positioning statement, maybe one, two, or three. And this phase, it's really collaborative. The client really becomes part of our team. And after this is done, we are able to start working with the design and uh, come out with something that when we present to the client is not unexpected. And so do you feel that that joining of forces with the client is in any way diluting your ability to do great work? No, actually, it makes it way better. How come? Because we're working together. I'm not the artist who wakes up one morning and says, oh, today I feel that everything should be pink. Yes, this client today should be pink. There's no reason for me to wake up in the morning and decide that it should be like that. Of course, thanks to our abilities or lack of, we come out with something that, more or less fits with the brief that we gave ourselves 
sometimes if the client says something that we don't agree, we discuss it and we come with a position that matches both uh, parties' ideas. You mentioned your partner, Roberta. I sense that there was a before Roberta uh, Muka and an after Roberta Muka. Roberta joined, I always think, five years ago, but probably it's like 12 years ago. <laughs> and her last name is Roncival? Roncivalle. Roberta Roncivalle. And uh, she came and uh, she started to make sure that uh, I was uh, not uh, making clients run away. She started helping the company to start with processes, adding strategy to the process of design. How did you find her? How did you know you even needed that? I knew that I needed it because uh, I'm a slacker and I need somebody who's able to structure, who's helping to grow the company and to talk to clients because I'm terrible at talking to clients. Really? Or I think I am. Why? Or I don't Why? want what? to. So what makes somebody Bec- terrible when they're talking to clients? Uh, because uh, the truth is I don't want to talk to them. I want to design typefaces. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's not true. It's not true. No, it is true. I read this fantastic <laughs> quote. It said, the difference between the young and beautiful Matteo, who started fucking around with some type design software and the middle-aged but still beautiful man, is that now I have this superpower of understanding a brand from afar. And now I can use this superpower to give the universe perfectly current typefaces. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote. <laughs> it is a good quote. I loved it, actually. So as a typographer, I understand that you never felt like a real man because you hadn't designed a text face. Yes. So talk to us about becoming a real man. I'm still not a real man. I'm... I thought you designed a text face. Yeah, the truth is because I learned graphic design by myself, type design by myself, branding by myself... I feel always insecure. You know, you never feel like, wow, I am the right person. Yeah, and especially, Mateo, I don't think that means – I think if, even if you had an education, you'd still feel that way. Uh, maybe. I don't know. But, you know, that's how I feel. Maybe I'm just insecure by nature. But the type design thing, you see certain typefaces around you. are like, fuck, those are amazing. And uh, I always designed display faces, the display faces are the ones that are easy to design. They wanted to use big. It doesn't matter if they're very well spaced or if they are very well designed because you use them for titles, for um, signs. They're usually used for short words. While text faces are typefaces that you will keep your eyes on for let's say, at least two to 300 pages. So they need to be designed in a particular way so that they don't have any weird letters that distract you and at the same time makes you at ease. And this is the most difficult kind of typeface to design because there's a lot of combinations of letters, so it's a lot of work. And... uh, I never designed a, a text face, so I tried to design a text face 10 years ago. It took me too long. At a certain point, I had to hire somebody to finish the typeface, which is Joshua, Joshua Darwin, which is fantastic type designer. And actually, I realized that there's a lot of famous type designers who do the basic character set, and then they gave it to a technician who... In this case, Joshua is also a great type designer. He's the one who designed Freight and Omnis. And these people 
makes your basic drawing into an amazing typeface. And so do you feel like you've proven your masculinity? No, I'm still, uh, no. And so why did you name your face Infidelity? I have absolutely no idea, but... Uh, Does it have anything to do with proving your masculinity? Yeah, maybe it's about being still in the closet. <laughs> so, Matteo, you've worked for restaurants in addition to doing Balthazar and Pravda. You've also designed Pastis and Schiller's. You've worked for Gracious Home. You've worked for Victoria's Secret. You've worked for Brooklyn Fair, the magnificent grocery in Brooklyn. Talk about a project that you have now that you find challenging, something that is pushing you or forcing you to grow in ways that might be unexpected. Now we're working on a project in Chicago. Is probably going to be called the Chicago Athletic Association. It's in this amazing building in front of the beam. <laughs> That's good. In Millennium Park. It looks like the Duke Palace in Venice, but it was made 100 years ago. The owner are keeping it as is. It's more a work of restoring it than uh, tearing it down. The interior is made by uh, Roman and Williams, who are these fantastic uh, architects and designers, and it looks really great. And again, it's one of those projects that is very, very challenging because it's big, it's very different from all the other hotels that you'll see around because there's a big history behind it, which is kind of weird because it was a, a very exclusive Chicago association of athletics. And it's challenging because it's big. It's a lot of work and you want to do something new, but at the same time try to respect uh, the past. And it's great to work on something new that has a history. You know, with Balthazar, we had to fake the past. There was absolutely nothing that was real. In this case, instead, I'm actually going next week to meet with an historian who has a lot of materials about this job. So as you've grown your company out of your wife's bedroom and into your own studio and then partnering with Roberta and bringing more of a positioning aspect to your business, has it changed the way that you design? Are you still fundamentally involved in everything that's designed at MUCA? Um, it didn't change that much, I have to say. I'm still a pain in the ass who goes to my designers and asks them to kern the type. I'm the one who teaches the interns the tricks on how to use tabs in InDesign. But I don't do code, unfortunately. Why unfortunately? Because otherwise I would be busting their balls about doing the right JavaScript or whatever <laughs> PHP thing. Do you see yourself ever learning it, going to the coding academy? No. I've been thinking about doing that. I'm doing it online, but I prefer to watch Netflix. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's on the same device. <laughs> <laughs> Matteo, my last question for you is this. Is it true that for Steve Heller's book, Typography Sketchbooks, you made up the sketches for work that was already done and re-engineered the sketches? <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve asked me to do it. Steve and Lita, and Lita Talarico, they asked me to submit something. And I don't sketch type. I just work directly with a computer. I know that a lot of type designers would abhor at the idea, but that's how I do. So I faked my sketches. 
Mateo, you are brilliant in, in every way. And I just enjoyed talking with you so much today. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you very much. And you have wonderful boobies. Thank you. <laughs> to see Mateo Bologna's and Muka's work, go to their website, muka.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. 